Welcome to The Sharp End. I'm Craig Brown, Senior Multi-Asset Investment Specialist for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. I'm joined as usual by David Coombs, Head of Multi-Asset Investments. Hello. And Will McIntosh-White, Fund Manager for the Rathbone Multi-Asset Funds. Hello. On this month's episode, David, Will and I are going to be discussing the outcome of the Jackson Hole meeting and whether this changes anything for us. Uh, the US housing market, which has felt some of the pain of this rate rising environment. And lastly, we're going to turn our focus to the gaming industry, given the flurry of news and rumours in that sector over the last few months or so. However, as usual, before we get on with the show, we're going to go through the usual do's and don'ts. So please listen up. This podcast is intended for professional investors and must not be shared with a non-professional audience. Any views and opinions are those of the investment manager and coverage of any assets must be taken into context of the constitution of the fund and in no way reflect investment recommendations. Past performance should not be seen as an indication of future performance. So gents, I'm just back, as you know, from two and a bit weeks of hauling myself and the family around Disney World in the blazing Florida sun. I did bring back with me a metric ton of Disney paraphernalia, as I'm sure you can probably imagine, had to buy a new suitcase and everything, Uh, a much lighter bank balance as well. But I did also bring back with me a bit of a sense the US feels a bit different to the UK at the moment. When I was out in the sunshine state, there wasn't this feeling of impending doom that there seems to be confronting us in in the UK, where pages one through 12 feel like it should come with a brandy or something. People are still spending money in the US and the Americans I spoke to whilst they were there don't seem to be feeling the pinch as much as we are here in the UK. Prices in Walmart didn't feel as eye-watering as they are in UK supermarkets. Filled up my hire car, my Kia Sportage, uh, from empty to full for the princely sum of 40 bucks at three and a half dollars a gallon. So with all this in mind, post the Jackson Hole comments from Jerome Powell being slightly more hawkish than expected, Does he have a point? And is there plenty more room for some tightening in the US? I think he does have a point. I mean, I felt for you, Craig, out there, because I think the dollar was getting even more expensive by the day (laughs) uh, versus sterling. It was. Luckily, my my currency trading acumen obviously got me to buy, you know, a few dollars in in spring and uh, I was clinging on to them for dear life. I know, I bet you got through those pretty quick. Yeah, definitely. But I think he does have a point to a certain extent. I don't think it was surprising for... Jerome Powell to be hawkish, given markets had rallied up until that point. Um, And when you look at the data in the US, as you say, as you saw on the ground out there, people are out there, people are spending, you know, goods demand is still elevated. I think in particular, it's labour, it's the labour market that seems to be of big focus, uh, where you still seem to see tightness. I think we mentioned in a podcast or two ago that you'd seen wages easing off, sort of growth in wages easing off, and actually that re-accelerated over the summer to over 5%. Um, So under those kind of circumstances, I don't think there was ever a chance in hell that, you know, this Fed pivot was coming right now and that you were going to have a nice dovish statement. And they certainly were going to say, yeah, maybe we'll cut next year. Um, and the market's now completely priced that out, which I think is absolutely right. I was quite surprised the market reaction was quite so negative, perhaps. Um, but I think some of that was the fact that there was a reference in there to making sure inflation expectations remain anchored. And in particular, sort of saying, we're at neutral, we're going to move to more restrictive policy. And it sounded like they're going to keep it there. And what they don't want to do 
is go restrictive and then start cutting and actually what happened in the 70s. And I, I don't like drawing that comparison because I don't think we're in the 70s. I think quite a lot has changed since then. Um, but what happened then is that inflation expectations didn't really become anchored and actually they re-accelerated when you know, the Federal Reserve started cutting and got away from them. And I think that was what Powell was trying to quash and markets have taken that quite negatively to basically say, okay, we've got more hikes coming and we're not cutting probably for the whole of next year. I think I will decide whether we're near the 70s or not, as I was actually there compared to you two. <laughs> yeah, but I can confirm this is, does feel, okay, it feels slightly similar in some ways, but very different in others. And we didn't have a pandemic in the 70s, just to throw that in there. Uh, I mean, I think, frankly, the whole Jackson Hole debacle, as I would describe it, is that what was the point, really? I'm not sure it helped anybody, actually. I think the markets and so-called smart analysts who decided the Fed was going to cut rates in Q1, which I think we've, we're on the record as saying we never thought that was going to happen, because if that was going to happen, we we're going to have a massively deep recession, and the Fed would have had to have admitted they'd had a policy error, which seemed massively unlikely to me. And I felt that Jackson Hole, we actually learned nothing new, which is astonishing. I mean, the fact that the central banker said we might hold rates a little longer to make sure inflation is beaten, well, surprise, not. And for the markets to rally so strongly on the back of we're going to have rate cuts and then sell off in the week after Jackson Hole because we're not having rate cuts, to me, just it's just ludicrous, actually. Totally and utterly ludicrous. And unfortunately, there is a lot of comment right now out there that is, frankly, makes my blood boil. We're in a race to the top of inflation uh, we're going off Jackson Hole topic a little bit here, but um, sorry, Craig, you know, I know you tell me off later, but 18% inflation, UK. Nope, Goldman Sachs, 22%. I'm waiting for Deutsche Bank's 30 by the end of the week. This is absolutely nuts. It's unhelpful, actually. And, it, and for a serious point of view, I think the impact these kind of wild speculation has on markets is, is not helpful for anybody. And I think, as I said, Jackson Hole, going back to that, what was the point? It was a 10 or 11 minute speech where he didn't really say much. Uh, I watched CNBC for 30 minutes afterwards. I don't normally watch uh, CNBC, but I did. And the analysts were struggling to find anything of interest in what Powell had to say, which as I watched it live myself, I concurred with them. I couldn't see anything particularly interesting either. So it's a non-event that became a big event and had a massive impact on markets. Great. So what does it mean? I mean, sadly, and maybe slightly boringly, it means no change from my perspective. You know, as I have repeated throughout the year in podcasts, like a metronome, I still think US rates have ended between three and a half and four percent. Nothing that happened last week has persuaded me that's wrong. It's probably closer to four than three and a half, I guess, given the slightly hawkish tone. And, you know, and, and it's only employment numbers being so robust that probably supports that. I think the devil's in the detail with that employment. I know, you know, we discussed it in the team after the NFP, the last NFPs, where it came in, you know, incredibly high, you know, beat every analyst on the street's expectation by a good couple of hundred thousand. And you scratch beneath the surface and, you know, 300,000 of those jobs are part-time for economic reasons. Doesn't scream tight labor market to me. You know, you've got 5 million people that are out of those numbers, out of the unemployment number, because they haven't looked for a job in the last four weeks, but actually want a job. Again, doesn't scream tight labor market. So I don't know, for me, does Jerome Powell need to be worried about some, you know, inflationary spiral with wage costs? It doesn't feel like that to me. 
Well, yeah, without getting into a huge debate on inflation, US interest rates again, which I think we've done at least two or three <laughs> podcasts this, this, this year. Like I say, I don't see any particular change in interest rate policy in the US. I think the Fed is probably looking as if it has more credibility than other central banks at the moment. Frankly, I think they probably, they were a bit late, you could argue, into this cycle, but they're certainly ahead of the curve in terms of their counterparts elsewhere. I do think the US economy is is in a slightly better place, which you know we can talk about probably a bit later. So um, from my point of view, I think the US remains on course for falling inflation and for rates to peak out in the next sort of two to three months. And, and, and we're not going to change our approach. I think what's more interesting is what happens in Europe in terms of inflation. I got called out on LinkedIn because we, I think Will rang the bell on peak inflation in the last podcast. <laughs> I think it's worth reiterating we were talking about the US and globally rather than than Europe, where it's you know it's still the visibility on that is is still pretty poor. So yeah, I think Jackson Hole, null event in terms of impact on monetary policy. And let's not also forget that during the same week Biden announced that uh, we would have debt relief on student loans on, I think it was earnings below $110,000. So yeah, we're, ha- we're having fiscal easing, which also would have meant Jerome Powell would have felt more confident in raising rates. What is interesting is on the level of belligerent hawkishness that I think the Fed have shown, and whilst they didn't really say anything, I do just wonder if we'll give other central bankers ideas about being a bit more hawkish, particularly in the faces, as we said, that ever-increasing inflationary pressures in the UK and Europe. And certainly, you know, in the UK, if we see some policies on the domestic front, when we have a new prime minister, it wouldn't surprise us, I think, to see Andrew Bailey and, and the MPC uh, pushing on rates a bit harder in the UK. Well, certainly the gilt market seems to be agreeing with you because you've seen the 10-year gilt pushing towards a 3% yield. And you know, we've taken the opportunity this week of adding credit to some of the lower risk mandates as those nominal yields push higher. So you know, you've seen a bit of weakness in, in sterling bond markets this week. And I think that probably supports that view. Right. Well, um, I think probably now like, an opportunity time, given you mentioned student debt, which kind of plays in a, a little bit to this this housing theme. But you know that is one area housing that's really felt the brunt of this rate rising environment, and you can understand because you know monthly mortgage payments are pressing higher at, at quite a clip with the thirty year mortgage rate having doubled now. Um, you know, with those fixed products, though, clearly the thirty year fixed aren't feeling this on a day to day basis, but it is impacting new house sales, mortgage demand and broad housing sentiment, which has already plummeted. But so despite a relatively rosier picture, perhaps for the US economy, certainly more so than the UK and Europe, should we be worried about the souring of this this housing market, David? Yeah, well, yes, we should be worried. The US housing starts fell by about 10% last month, and that was accelerating the trend of weaker starts now for two to three months. This is yet another early signal for me in terms of the rolling over of the US economy and, and early signs of a slowdown. We discussed in the past about, in the last podcast about, you know, Walmart, we're seeing Cineworld file for, for bankruptcy in, in, in the US, or chapter 11, I should say. So the housing picture is certainly looking weaker. And I think it's the the rate of that fall this month compared to previous falls is, is accelerating. Quite, quite markedly, in actual fact, as I say, down 10% month on month. And of course, 
you find yourself in this really strange position where that bad news is good news. In the way, and, and the market is going to be looking for bad news like this before it turns. It's we're in one of those strange scenarios where you need this sort of date, this data, sorry, um, illustrating slowdowns because that will again support the the pausing of, of interest rate policy. So we've already seen, however, within the equity market and certainly in in, in in stocks in our portfolio, we don't have a huge amount of exposure to the U.S. housing market, but you know we have seen weakness in those names. Uh, involved with construction really since since start of the year I mean significantly lower so the question is how much of that weakness is already baked in always very difficult to tell but certainly I don't think you'll see a turnaround in sentiment in the housing and construction industry you know in the next few months now what goes on over there usually goes on over here eventually I guess and you know what does what does this tell us about the UK housing market and certainly you know our listeners clients will have a particular interest in housing, it does feel like we may start to see a pause in housing in the UK. You've only got to look at the house builders. Some of them are yielding, I think, double digits right now. They've had a terrible year as well. So again, is it already baked in? It's certainly, we've not seen falls in house prices of any significance yet in the UK, but we are seeing increased pushback against support for second homeowners, buy-to-lets, uh, on top of higher interest rates. And if the Bank of England does rate, raise rates to 4%, which is many people now believe, will take mortgage rates. Okay, those on fixed will be okay for the short term, but new mortgages, you, you'll be looking at rates of sort of 5 6 7%. Compared to where we were two, three years ago, that has got to have an impact on home starts in the UK. And of course, that impact is felt much sooner as well, because... We don't have those 30-year fixed products like the US, as we've discussed in the past. So you might be on a two-year fix, but if you roll off in the middle of next year, you know, your mortgage payment could be going up by a few hundred quid a month. And in the face of, you know, those energy price rises as well, that doesn't paint an overly pretty picture for people's sort of housing affordability. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the stats, but I, th- I think I think people do fix up to five years these days. So it's two to five years. But what that percent, how that breaks down in terms of the housing, you know, the current leveraged housing market, I don't know. But certainly for new entrants. Now, you might argue that house prices falling 10% in the next 18 months might be a good thing. In fact, you know, Rahab, who's looking to buy a house, she probably, uh, you know, would welcome that, I guess. I mean, the other thing, of course, it's the second order impact, isn't it? Will we go back to talking about the 70s and other recessions in the 80s, negative equity? And if you get into negative equity on people who are taking out mortgages so a year ago, what does that mean for non-performing loans at the banks? Now, I don't want to get too doom and gloom around this, but you know, we do have to be cognizant of the potential for the Bank of England to make a policy error. I mean, I certainly wouldn't bet my house. Sorry, bad example. <laughs> I wouldn't bet against uh, uh, the Bank of England making a policy error here. I mean, I think they've got a long way to prove credibility, frankly, at the moment. I mean, from someone who finally got on the housing ladder a year ago after 15 years working, I'm certainly hoping that um, it's not the peak of the housing market. But, you know, no, my luck, I'm sure it will be. I think that that affordability point is absolutely huge there. And and just going back to the US, because whilst the housing market is a relatively small part of the overall economy, you know, it has that multiplier effect, you know, with your house going up, you feel wealthier, consumer confidence is going up, et cetera. So it is absolutely key to the US economy. And there is no doubt that we are seeing a little bit of weakness in there. But, you know, you alluded earlier to 
student debt relief package. One of the interesting things reading about that is whether that will lead to a wave of new demand. And, and the reason I say that is when you actually look at the figures, so you're talking about 43 million people with student debt, 20 million are going to have their entire debt cancelled. Um, and supposedly surveys around those people are going to have their entire debt cancelled. 24% are planning to buy a new property with their so-called savings. Uh, so in theory, you could have anywhere up to 5 million people now deciding that you know it's time for them to get on the housing ladder and buy a new home. Now, the affordability question, I'm sure, will knock a few people out of there. Um, but it's interesting that, I mean, you know, as part of this all, it all sort of falls under this supposed Inflation Reduction Act of the US, which which looks to me like it's all going to be quite inflationary, personally. But it is interesting that just as the housing market is rolling over and supposedly there's a lot of supply coming on, and you just thought, actually, that would help easing the inflation picture. Is there potentially a you know wave of, and it's not just students, it's interesting, when you look at the breakdown of who has student debt, you know, a third of it's with people in their 20s, a third in their 30s, and a third is over 40s. So there are plenty of older people with student debt who, who might be looking at getting onto the housing market. That might just provide a little bit of support uh, for, for the market in you know, in terms of what might have been weaker but, with but, high mortgage But con rates. contrast that to the UK, where we've got fiscal tightening, not fiscal easing. I mean, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting, the different... Well, that's if we had a prime minister. Uh, well, <laughs> um, certainly if Sunak were to win, which are, you know, looks unlikely, he, he, he's talking about tax rises when Biden is reducing tax and into arguably an economy that's in a stronger place and less impacted by global energy prices than, than the UK. And that does give the Fed that, that room. Whereas in the UK, we're looking at, okay, if trust comes in, she's going to reduce taxes allegedly, although I think most of that is actually just reversing tax rises rather than tax cuts. Although there was, this, uh, there was some talk of cutting VAT, which I I think it's unlikely personally, and I can't see that's going to work. But we've got fiscal tightening, really, in the UK, uh, certainly not fiscal easing, and interest rate tightening. That feels like a much bigger headwind to housing in the UK than housing in the States. And I certainly wouldn't be attracted into the house builders. I mean, we don't really invest in them very often. I mean, they're very volatile and, and highly cyclical, and they don't really fit our kind of approach. So I, I, I'm not tempted anyway, to be honest, but I think... That area and probably more regulation coming, I, th I suspect, and more political intervention in the housing market. I mean, you know, the debate around the lack of housing in the UK has been going on and on and on. You have to believe at some stage a politician genuinely tries to deal with that. Don't know. Discuss. So I think we have to accept or expect, I should say, some weakness in UK housing and that is, as you were saying, Will, that I think that does have an impact on consumer confidence. Uh, it's not a positive one. Where, where we do have a little bit of kind of housing adjacent exposure, I suppose, is via some of those US names like the Home Depots, your Fergusons, maybe Trex in a, in a way, in the sense that, you know, they're all connected to kind of people spending money on their homes as opposed to buying new homes. And, you know, one wonders whether, again, the pinch on consumer wallets, does that impact people's desire to want to put that new kitchen in or want to get that decking or whatever they're going to do? Or indeed, actually, do those students that are getting their debt counseled that perhaps already own homes, now they get the windfall. So do you get some kind of offset? So it's quite difficult to kind of sort of weigh the two up there and see which side of the fence you fall. I think you definitely, 
you know, these things are cyclical. We know we know that, you know, it's no getting away from it. And we know that if the housing market rolls over aggressively, these things are going to sell off. And as, as David pointed out earlier, there has already been some significant weakness in these names. I think they fared a bit better than some of the house builders and have been more resilient. And again, they're names where we've looked at the strength of the balance sheet, certainly a name like Ferguson, which once upon a time, you know, was A, much more cyclical and B, had a much weaker balance sheet, certainly going into the, you know, housing crisis of... 2008, yeah, these names we think can comfortably get through. These markets are very fragmented, particularly uh, Ferguson's markets in the in the B2B. Short term, there'll be some weakness. Longer term, they'll end up taking share and, and come out stronger. So I think I think you know if, you know, if housing market rolls and we have a difficult slash recessionary environment, you know, you're not going to hide successfully in these names, but longer term, they're quality names where I think we feel relatively comfortable. I mean, they're certainly not defensives, right? I think we can definitely agree, <laughs> agree on that. And yeah, Trex's share prices come back quite a long way. Ferguson and Home Depot have actually held up better, but I think we would accept, expect them to be weaker. And yet you know, they're quality businesses that we will take that as an opportunity to add to, to be quite honest. Certainly won't be looking to sell them. So it feels like a good time to move on to our last topic. So it's been a good few years uh, since I dusted off my PlayStation controller and spent a few hours battling the forces of evil or trying to get Arsenal to finally win the league again. Um, but for many people, those controllers never gather dust and rather they might be fused to their hand in some cases. So, you know, the gaming industry is already pretty huge. Revenues far outstripping Hollywood already. The pace of growth doesn't seem to be, you know, waning at all. And, you know, we've owned a basket of gaming names in the portfolio for some time to benefit from the long-term trends in that space. But we've seen some M&A activity recently with Activision Blizzard in the process of being acquired by Microsoft, recent rumors in the space of Amazon considering a bid for EA, although EA have refuted that. So, you know, are we expect to see more M&A in this space and, and how else can we get access to the gaming names, Will, other than those direct gaming producers? I mean, the direct gaming producers, as I say, it's, it's- sort of a bit of a war for content and talent at the moment in this space. And so I don't think it's a big surprise to see, you know, those larger names like Amazon. And you might not think of Amazon as being a particular gaming name, but of course, you know, they have things like Twitch, which is a live streaming platform. And and one of the great pastimes of the youth these days is not just playing games, but is watching other people play games, <laughs> whether that's on Twitch or YouTube. And you know, I was talking to my nephew last night in preparation for this. <laughs> those, are his, those are his two favourite platforms to watch people play on. So it's no surprise to see these names being a target. I mean, I think when we picked them up, we knew that you know, there were only a handful of, for us, the high quality, bigger names. And, and we've picked up stakes in most of them through that basket. And I just think this continues to be a really attractive space. You talked about the size of the market. It's, you know, over 200 billion uh, which is even bigger than when we first yeah. started coming into this space, I think, what, in 2018, when we put this basket together. I think that's nearly doubled, actually, those revenues. And it's not just my 12-year-old nephew. Might be 13 now. Kill me for that one. Um, but, you know, your average gamer's mid-30s. You know, they're actually earning a decent wage. And, of course, the structure of this whole market has completely changed in terms of it's not buying those physical games, it's digital. And often now it's not actually buying the games at all. You think of Fortnite, which was the classic name that came in, and people got very worried about Fortnite disrupting this space and free games disrupting this space. But I think it's a model a lot of producers are looking at. And rather than just buying those games, it's it's in-game purchases, whether it's for a new skin 
uh, for a new dance. David's looking a bit, bit confused. I'm sure. <laughs> what is your new dance? <laughs> yeah. uh, I didn't actually know you could buy a new dance, but I was, I was reliably informed that last night. Um, but a new weapon, etc. And, you know, my nephew again was, he says he pays £2 a month for this. His friends pay £10 a month for this. You know, so you're getting this regular spend on something that people spent a lot of time on. Um, you can argue it's very good value for money in terms of a form of entertainment. I'm not going to say it's recession-proof, but in terms of when you're thinking about how you're allocating your spend if times get tough, I think you're going to cut your 10 15 £20 cinema ticket um, a lot more quickly than you're going to cut your gaming spend when you can spend a lot of time on a free game and just spend a little bit of in-game purchases. So I think these are really an interesting place to be. Uh, and I think, you know, the big names like Microsoft, like Amazon are con- going to continue to look at some of the content providers. As somebody, we talked about the 1970s earlier when I was watching Cracker Jack and we were playing electronic tennis, I think was about as Pong, sophisticated... <laughs> as the computer gaming, and that's probably the last time I played one. So this is not my area of expertise, I think it's pretty fair to say. So I'm just going to slightly point out to the the weaknesses in the sector in some respects. Clearly, the the size of the market, the opportunity, the the increased focus on recurring revenues, this is a very good area to invest, and it also is clearly an area. I mean, as you rightly say, this is not just Gen Z, as people were originally kind of pushing it. This This is... Maybe millennials. I don't think boomers are quite there, but you know, it's definitely uh, Generation X, should we say? But I mean, the reason, of course, that we put the basket together. Let's not let's not forget is that the the consumer is quite fickle. Games go in and out of fashion. Often the upgrades are met, uh, which are, are done via betas. See, I, I do know this space a little bit. Often they disappoint in pre markets. That can have a big impact on the volatility of the share prices. We've seen Ubisoft, one of the one of the names we own which has uh, repeatedly seen delays in new games coming to market. I think EA has been the same. So these these investments are not without risk. They are they are very very volatile. We actively trade them and and they are not a full position size. That's why we bought a basket making up one position size. Just to remind our investors what they are. We own Electronic Arts known for probably in the UK more for FIFA than probably Madden or or uh, NFL I suspect. Although of course Craig, you will definitely know that, being the US file that you are. Um, We own Take-Two, which uh, one of its most famous games is Grand Grand Theft Auto. We did own, and well, still own, uh, Activision Blizzard, Call of Duty. As you you said earlier, I think World Microsoft's taken that over. Uh, And then, as I say, we we also own Ubisoft, which is... Assassin's Creed, I think. Assassin's Creed. Yeah, Creed's Assassin, something like that anyway. <laughs> um, and what we've done is we've replaced Activision, given that takeover with NVIDIA, which is not a game studio. It's it's more the hardware and software, the, the graphic um, units that support gaming and make specialized uh, gaming hardware. I mean, amongst other other areas, I mean, NVIDIA is also used in, 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 in manufacturing as well and, and, and other industries, but clearly has a a niche, almost a dominant position in both hardware and the software that supports gaming. And so it it allows us a slightly different way into that market. And actually, it's still relatively volatile stock. We've only bought it recently after it's come down quite a long way with the NASDAQ this year. So it's been a good opportunity to buy it. But it it means you're not exposed to just one studio in in the same way that you are with the others, so we I feel a little bit more relaxed about Nvidia maybe being a, a slightly bigger position maybe at some stage than 
than the gaming studios. Well, excellent. I, I personally can't wait to see uh, what dance Will has bought for his new character on Fortnite or whatever his nephew has clearly got him into playing or, or watching on Twitch these days. But um, So we've reached that part of the show, the any other business part of the show, which gives us all that space to rant and vent our spleens ever so slightly. I think um, I'll probably start on this one uh, and I'll, I'll let uh, Will and David... Uh, follow, but as as I mentioned earlier, I've just come back from the states, and yes, I did do the Disney World thing. Um, I used the excuse that it was for the kids, but I used to go before the kids were born. So to be honest with you, I I, uh, I can't really use that excuse. But what I found really bugged me, amongst a few things actually, whilst I was over there, was you were sitting on a ride, um, and the person in front or behind you would have their camera out with their light gleaming, uh, gleaming, uh, videoing the entire ride, sort of disrupting your experience because you got this light shining everywhere. I just found it incredibly annoying because I kind of felt if you're on the ride, just just experience the ride and have a nice time. Don't ruin my experience by shining your light everywhere and then post it on Instagram to ruin everyone else's experience. It's a bit of a spoiler alert sort of situation. I found that very, very annoying. Just enjoy the ride in the moment and put your blooming phone down. And just to remind us, Craig, you went to Disneyland, what, for your kids' benefit or, or yours? I, I mean, again, I, you know, I'd, I mean, I was wearing a lot of Mickey ears, I think. <laughs> Craig's children are one and three. I'm just putting it out there. So, David, come on then. What's what's your any other business? Well, I it's it's LinkedIn, actually. And I think LinkedIn is, is incredibly powerful and it's very useful. However, some of the speed dating on LinkedIn is getting me down. I am constantly being uh, asked to connect with somebody and immediately try and sell me something. And, you know, on a first date, I don't expect that. I expect a little bit of wooing for a couple of days on LinkedIn before coming straight in and trying <laughs> to flog me a fund. And let me just, we don't buy funds, right? So everybody who's listening to this or, or is following it via LinkedIn, we do not buy funds. So stop sending me emails, phoning me, or LinkedIn messages saying, do you want to buy my fund? It's really interesting, actually, that the amount of US hedge funds have contacted me in the last three weeks. Every, and I'm not kidding, every single day. And each email starts, my fund is up this year. Do you want to buy it? No. Craig's obviously yeah. been passing out your business cards. Yeah, exactly. The, so I did take a stack with me, to be honest. So. <laughs> Yeah, I just kept dropping you in the those little bowls at hotels, you know, <laughs> uh, as as I went round. But um, but yeah, so clearly you want to wind and dine first, David. You know, you are sort of playing hard to get ever so slightly with these. Uh, you need to woo me. You know, I'm not that. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry. That's just not going to happen. I do not give out a purchase on the on the first contact. It's a very eligible financial bachelor, David is. You know. <laughs> By the way, I don't have business cards. I've gone digital. <laughs> so, Will, come on then, hit us with your any other business. Mine's probably on just stats and surveys at the minute. So there's that infamous thing of, you know, 70% of stats are made up on the spot. And I do think we get thrown a lot of facts and figures. And I always think it's really important just to do a little bit of digging around, particularly when you see something that that makes you question. And, and the reason I say this, I was updating myself on, on the gaming market last night, having a look at a few facts and figures. And I came across one which was 70% of parents see gaming as a positive influence on their children. And that made me think, because I don't think I've spoken mm. to a single parent ever who has thought that gaming has a positive influence on their children. Uh, so I did a bit of digging. I went into the, you know, the bibliography, as it were, and that, that came from a survey by the ESA. So I did a bit more digging. Of course, the ESA is the Enterprise Software Association. <laughs> so unsurprisingly, a survey done by a collaboration of gaming companies concluded 
that parents actually see gaming as a positive influence. So I think make sure you just dig around and, you know, check where your stats are coming from. I think you're a conspiracy theorist, frankly. I, I believe it. <laughs> yeah, I, bought, I bought Will back a pair of tinfoil Mickey ears. Um, yeah, well, my favourite stat, of course, is the well-known cologne that works 60% of the time every time. So, um, but no, thanks again, uh, both for your, your venting your spleen with me. But um, thanks for joining us. And we hope you'll join us again for the next monthly instalment of The Sharp End. If you didn't listen at the time, please feel free back, to go back and listen to our earlier episodes. Last month, David, Will and Rahab discussed whether we might have seen peak inflation in the US, how the Tory leadership race uh, made us reassess the up and downsides of deregulation, and how water has become an exciting investment topic and, and theme for us. Don't forget to email us with your thoughts and feedback or suggestions uh, for future topics at the email address we mentioned a few episodes ago, which is thesharpend at rathbones.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcasting platforms. And please don't forget to hit the like or subscribe button. Please also feel free to rate and review us if you've got some time. And if you'd like to hear more about the Rathbone multi-asset funds, please speak to your usual Rathbone sales contact or visit the website at www.rathbonefunds.com. Thanks again. Thank you.